Hi, welcome to the Book of Medora, the podcast where we talk about Zelda lore. I'm Crystal, and with me as always is Cameron. Hi, everybody. Today we're going to talk about the big one, Cameron. The Zelda game, some might say. Ocarina of Time. The big one. Yeah, that's that's definitely a fair thing to say about it. It definitely set the tone of the series for the next 20 years. In some ways, it probably did that more concretely than the first game did. Yeah, we kind of talked about how a Link, Link's Awakening set the tone for Zelda going forward, and then Link to the Past sort of established the cosmology and the gameplay structure going forward, and then Ocarina synthesized that, and then also invented 3D action-adventure. It's like it defined an entire genre at the same time that it made the series character-focused in terms of its storytelling in a way that it absolutely had not been before. So where should we start? The Civil War? Yeah, yeah. Um, though at the time, it wasn't actually a civil war because the land had yet to be properly united. Uh, is that so? Yeah, the way that the Deku Sprout phrases it is that some time ago, before the King of Hyrule unified this country, there was a fierce war in our world. And basically the way that it works is, give or take a decade before the game starts, a war is going on. And we don't know exactly how long the war has lasted. We don't even know who's involved in it. But we know that it covered the land that would eventually become Hyrule. And that during the conflagrations of war, there was a Hylian woman. Hmm. Maybe we should actually back up a bit more uh, and talk about the setting a little bit, like we did with Breath of the Wild. Because Ocarina of Time is the first game in the series that really takes the setting and says, okay, there's plenty of people that live here who are not human. And even plenty of people that live here is kind of a new thing. The only game that kind of did that before was Zelda 2. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you were otherwise limited to single villages and Link's Awakening and sort of Link to the Past. And Ocarina of Time only really gestures at it in the way that you have to when working with a game of this scale, but it tries to convey the sense of a lived-in world populated by many different peoples and cultures. Yeah, so there are several towns with, as you said, several different races. Yeah, like, you've got the Hylians, who are essentially humans with pointy ears, and that's the kind of character who's been present in every game in the series up to now. Humans, so to speak. You've got the... Gorons, who outside of the humans are probably the most recurring people in the series. Definitely. They show up everywhere. Yeah. And they're like big rock people who are super nice and they eat rocks and they're all masculine as shit for whatever reason. And they seem to understand everything around them in terms of masculinity. Like everyone is brother. Yep. And you've got the Zora, who for the first time are not monsters. Yeah, that was kind of a weird change. Why did they make him Zora? I think probably they were going for, like, elemental representation, where the Gorons represent either earth or fire, and the Zora represent water, and each of the different peoples represents different elements, which is best conveyed through the sages. And well, I get that part, but why would they specifically connect them to a monster race? I don't know. I guess they thought that having multiple races of fish people would be a little weird. But I mean, I, I kind of like the change. The, the Using Octoroks in place of the old-fashioned Zora works fine. But yeah, it, I guess so. it does make you wonder what's up with the Zora in the earlier games. But there's never really any explanation for that at all. 
it does sort of in an early way imply that there would be some sort of down downfall in the timeline. Hmm. Yeah, that degradation idea is something that got bandied about a lot by different people. Uh, after the Zora, we have the Children of the Forest. Uh, in this particular incarnation, they're the Kokiri, who are human-like, but are perpetually children, like something out of Peter Pan. And they live under the protection of the Great Deku Tree, who is... We'll come back to this, but he's one of the major guardian gods that each of the different peoples of Hyrule seem to have. A lot of minor deities from this point forward in the Zelda world. And I think Ocarina of Time actually went in heaviest on it. Because even though you only actually meet a couple of them, each of these different ethnicities has their own god representing them and standing guard over them. And each of them, in their way, gets in the way of Ganon, and it doesn't turn out well for most of them. Uh, I guess there's a weird implication of... So each of, like you said, each of these races sort of has their own god, but they are all considered minor deities in comparison to the Hylian gods. Well, that's just the thing, isn't it? Because Hylian worship isn't made very explicit, and the existence of the Triforce gods is actually considered very secret at this point. Like, in this game, the Triforce gods are a myth and not active uh, objects of worship. Oh, so you're saying Din and Ferori and Nehru are not worshipped by Highlands in this game? No, they're not. Like, that changes when we get around to Twilight Princess, but as of Ocarina of Time, the only time that they're really mentioned, especially by name, is by Zelda and by the Deku Tree. So, do the Hylians not have religion, or, or what? I think they actually still worship Hylia in this. Like, if we want to view the game as existing in a larger canonical work. If we view it, like, by itself, in 1998, they didn't actively worship anything except a nebulous gods that weren't very well defined. But viewed in the larger sense of the series, they seem to still worship Hylia. Why do you say that? Well, they've got a lake named after her. And they still I do all of their so. worshipping at the Temple of Time, which is Hylia's temple and Hylia's element. Is that her elements? Hylia, the goddess who speaks from outside of time? Yeah, I think so. Oh, mm. so then, oh, in the next game when Zelda refers to the goddess of time, I hadn't considered this before. Oh, really? Yeah, that's uh, that's kind of how I read uh, how I started reading the games after Skyward Sword came out. Hylia is. Uh, you'll notice that everything in this game is that you move using time magic is the same color blue as the time stones in Skyward Sword. Yeah, that was definitely an intentional uh, implication in Skyward Sword itself. And all of that is like operating a, a, the same color as 5, which I think is also worth mentioning. Okay, so even though Helio was not invented yet in 1998, looking back with modern context, you can kind of see her presence here. Right. So you've got the uh, Kokiri with the Great Deku Tree. You've got the Zora with Lord Jabu Jabu. You've got the Hylians with Hylia. You've got the Gerudo with the Goddess of the Sand. And uh, I'll talk about the Gorons a little bit later. But I'm, I also think that they had a god who is now dead. There's also the Sheikah. The Sheikah, I think, at the time were probably meant to be an ethnicity of Hylian. But I could be reading that wrong. Well, it is said in the game that they are nearly extinct, right? Yep, one of the gossip stones says specifically, they say that Princess Zelda's nanny is actually one of the Sheikah, 
who many thought had died out. And the gossip stones are themselves marked with the Sheikah emblem. Yes. They would know. Well, not necessarily. They seem to just, like, repeat information that's said around them, which is how they know secret thoughts of people that uh, we see in the game. Like, they know Malin and the things she fantasizes about as she grows up and things like that. So they aren't... They aren't necessarily uh, trustworthy in terms of the information that they're relaying, but they are definitely saying things that people in the setting think. Kakariko is also referred to as being a Sheikah village before the Hylians uh, took over. Uh, yes, Impa opened it to the Hylians so that they would have somewhere to live. I guess there's a, some kind of housing crisis going on in Hyrule after the war. Well, they only had one other town before. Uh, I, well, I, you know, I think the setting implies that there are more towns that we never see, but yeah, basically, there's a lo- there was a lot of damage after the war, and after the war, Impa opens the village to all the refugees from it, and they start building new lives there, which is why there's so much carpentry going on. Yeah, and a lot of weird shit, like with the well, and the graveyard. And ghosties. Yeah, the Sheikah were engaged in some dark magics. I don't know about that. I think it's more that Hyrule and Ocarina of Time is just a very explicitly post-war setting. That's fair to say. Well, I don't know. You kind of don't really get that, I don't think. You talked before how there is a lot of carpentry going on in Carico, but otherwise, there are references to the war, but you don't necessarily see that in the environments. Everyone seems like they've been at peace for a while. Hmm. Let me see here. I mean, certainly if this war ended like less than 10 years ago you think there might be a little more signs uh 10 years is actually a long time for a reconstruction effort i think let's see i know that i named off the kokiri the zora the gorons the hylians we just talked about the sheikah a little bit the sheikah being basically uh as they end up being in breath of the wild a separate ethnicity almost a monastic order that is an ethnicity unto itself dedicated to serving the hyrulean royal family that's and it, really the only game where we see the Sheikah as a whole people and not just a couple people. Right, because they are very near to extinct as of this time. Which means that by the time Breath of the Wild rolls around, they've done a lot of uh, spreading. Which is good. And there's the Gerudo, who live in the desert. They're watched over by the goddess of the sand. And every single one of them is a woman. Except that a man is born to them once every hundred years. And that's them. That's them. That's all I've got for that. So, the king united all of these people at the end of the war into one kingdom of Hyrule. Yes. That would imply that the civil war was between them? I don't know. It's not super clear. Um, the king of Hyrule has a sworn brotherhood with Darunia, the chief of the Gorons, which implies that the war ended on amicable terms, at least between the Gorons and the Hylians. There is not really enough information to go on to say who the different parties in the war were. You could almost argue that it could have been an inter conflict since they're the most numerous people. And it seems to be that any amount of reconstruction effort seems to be focused on the Hylians themselves. The only other people we see with a pronounced presence of any kind of military structure are the Gerudo, who have a fortress acting as the border to their lands. So it's possible the war involved them, but there isn't really enough concrete information to go on. 
Yeah, I would say Ganondorf seems pretty, seems to have a decent relationship with him. He does. The first time you see him, he's going and offering up the symbols of his obeisance and making it clear that they're in each other's good graces. He's doing a thing. But, yeah, it turns out. Do you think this civil war is the same conflict alluded to in Link to the Past of the war over the Triforce? Oh, so you think it might be not only that war, the war for the Triforce, that turns into the imprisoning war as part of a larger conflict, but also it could have been the war that went on in the backstory of Twilight Princess? Possibly. Uh, I guess so. Hyrule has a lot of wars. Uh Oh, I don't say a lot of wars, because this stuff always happens over the course of centuries and centuries. It's relatively long gaps between major wars, and each of their major wars gets spun out into legend over the course of however many thousands of years. So I guess it's not fair to say it's got a lot of wars, but it's got a lot of stories about wars. So if we do consider all those conflicts to kind of be the same, then maybe this war is not like a World War II type thing where it happens for five or six years, but more like a hundred years war type thing where it happens so long that's just kind of the status quo for a while. That that could make a certain amount of sense. Um, huh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, there's no really concrete way to read that that gives us a definitive answer, and I don't actually think this is the war that's being referred to in Link to the Past. But yeah, that's that, that that's a that's a, that's a good reading. I kind of like that the idea that this is the war that establishes the kingdom of Hyrule as the major power in the region. Well, the king ended it. He brought peace, but that peace did not last very long, did it? Um, it did in its own sense. The real thing here is that as the war was going on, during all the Great Trouble, there was a Hylian woman who took grave injury as she was near to Kokiri Forest, and she had a baby with her. And knowing that her child would be in danger after she was dead, she took the baby into Kokiri Forest, which no one is supposed to be able to enter. And she found the great Deku Tree, guardian of the woods, and asked him to protect her child. And the Deku Tree looks at this kid and goes, this will be a child of destiny, and decides that the child will be raised as a Kokiri. Is there any particular reason why Link was named as the child of destiny? It's not clear. The Deku Tree seems to have a certain amount of ability for to foretell the future, but no, it's not really uh, given over to why the Deku Tree named him as such. One, one thing that struck me about Ocarina of Time is that it actually took me a few years of being on the internet before I thought of the main character as Link. Because as many times as I played through it, I only named him after myself. Yeah, so it, 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 that, was, that was a really special thing because it was the first game that I'd ever played where you could input your name and the characters would call you that. And I thought it was the coolest thing anyone had ever made. I've always just called Link Link. Oh, well that's cool too, I guess. But it, it formed a real connection for me. And uh, let's see. So, the war's over, and there's overtures of peace. The Hyrulean royal family forms alliances with the Zora and with the Gorons. And it seems like there are the overtures of alliance going on with the Gerudo. But during the ten years, or roughly, decade between the end of the war and the beginning of the game, Ganondorf, the king of the Gerudo, figures out through study or some other means, the legend behind the Triforce, which is supposed to be guarded by the royal family. And in this game, in order to find the Triforce, you need four objects. 
the three spiritual stones guarded by the great Deku tree, the Zora, and the Gorons, and the Ocarina of Time, which is the treasure of the Hyrulean royal family. And with those, you can access the Door of Time, which will open and allow you into the sacred realm where the Triforce waits for the person who would touch it. And Ganondorf decides he wants that shit real bad. Why? What's his problem? Well, in this game, he's just portrayed as being extremely power-hungry. He is the prototypical bad wizard, bad man. And I, re- I actually really like him. Ganondorf's probably my favorite character in this series. And it started off in this game where he's just so all in on being this power-hungry evil wizard. Who at the same time is actually really cool and like 10 feet tall. Super cool. But, but why? Uh, why what? Why? Is he... Okay, so first game, he's just a big pig. He, he's like a demon or something, yeah. Yeah, Zelda 3, we find out he used to be a man, but we don't really see that. Yeah. This game, he's a man, we meet him, we talk to him, but he's just still kind of a bad guy. Yeah, he's a, he's a dick who wants power. He, he, he reads or learns that he can hold the power of the gods, and he wants that. He wants to rule the world. He's already a king. Yeah, that's not good enough. Why stop there when you can have everything? He gets it, but then it's not good. Well, I mean, it would be good if these people would stop getting in his way. And for young Ocarina of Time Ganondorf, who may straight up have been too young for the war while it was raging, the idea of having that much power must have had some very particular appeal. Yeah, I wish they give him a little more motivation in this game. I don't know. Sometimes being bad is all you really need. But if you want motivation, the way I read it is that he was too young for the war in spite of being the leader of his people. And his people lost, and they have to make concessions. And it makes him feel powerless. And he sees what the Hylians have, and his people do not. And he decides he wants that for his people. And it grows from there, because at his heart, he's not a good person. But I think at first, he may have started out in a better place. The Garuda do also reject him, basically, right? Um, When they know what he's doing, yes. Apparently, Ganondorf has a very close inner circle, of whom we only see two members, Koome and Kotake, the evil witches who raised him. Who could have figured that the sorceress god king could turn out bad when raised by literal evil witches and every other gerudo seems to be almost completely ignorant of the things that he does except for noburu who learns and actively betrays him yeah it's very easy for me to imagine a version of this game where the gerudo are the enemy faction instead of the monsters. boy i'm glad they didn't do that like the gerudo have got some problems but i'm glad that it's like it's harmless compared to what that would have been Ugh, that would have been bad. So, Ganon decides he wants the Triforce, and the reasons behind it are never really gone into. You can infer certain things, but he really wants to be a god. And he figures out where each of the spiritual stones are, or at least he finds out who's guarding them. And before the game begins, the impetus for the beginning of Link's journey is that Ganondorf goes into Kokiri Forest, goes to the Deku Tree, and demands the spiritual stone. And the Deku Tree looks at him and says, you are a power-hungry mad bastard, and there's no way that you can be allowed to have the power of the gods. And Ganondorf says, oh, well, I see where you're coming from. And then he puts a death curse on the Deku Tree, intending to come back once it's dead and just pick up the 
spiritual stone of the forest whenever the Decatree can no longer guard it. I just like that the first canonical thing Ganondorf does, like the first thing we know he did was kill a god. It kind of sets the tone for him for the rest of the series. Well, you know, trees die. That one doesn't die very often. Well, kind of does. How many times has the Deku tree died? Okay, he dies in Ocarina. Okay. He almost dies in Ocarina again. Oh, come on. What do you mean? Little baby Deku Sprout? Yeah, if you hadn't been back there to save him. Oh, maybe. But he's fine in... Wind Waker? No, he's just old and kind of like, uh, dotty. I know there are two Deku trees in the Oracles games, but I don't think they die. Hmm. Okay, and he definitely doesn't die in Breath of the Wild. Yeah, that's maybe his most powerful version. Do you think? Oh, yeah, he does actively keep out all of the bad things. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's like, it, it, they give us a good idea of how we're supposed to have read Ocarina of Time going back to it. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So Ganondorf puts the death curse on the Deku Tree, and Link has a nightmare about Ganondorf, a vision of the future involving Ganondorf, while this is going on. And from there, certain parts of the game seem to be happening more or less uh, in parallel. Link, being a Hylian, doesn't naturally have a fairy assigned to him. All the Kokiri, the children of the forest, have fairies who flock to them naturally. Each of them seems to have one. And Link grows up as the boy without a fairy. So, after being hit with this death curse that is definitely going to kill him, the Deku Tree goes, you know what, we gotta, we gotta get this ball rolling now. It's too late for me. It is time to stop Ganondorf's plans, if at all possible. So he sends one fairy, Navi, to Link, that she might guide him on the quest. And Navi brings Link to the Deku Tree after a whole bunch of shit where he has to get past Mito, who is like the first school bully type character you ever run into in this series. No, I actually really did like the Kokiri Forest a lot. It has a lot of character. I agree. It's a bit strange how how childish they really are, considering they're immortal forest spirits. Yeah, like, I didn't get that as much when I first played this, because I, I played that particular sequence when I was 10 and 11, and, like, Saria, for instance, struck me as being very wise when I was 10. But I go back to that 20 years later, and I'm like, oh, okay, I can see why I thought that when I was a child, but she is also just a precocious, mentally, or emotionally well-developed child. Why do you think they take the form of children in this game as opposed to Leaf? I think it's probably a Peter Pan thing. Because if they had thought to do the Koroks at the time, they totally would have been Koroks. Though it also works better this way for the thing where Link is assumed to be a Kokiri. Which also implies that Kokiri start out smaller than we see them. Because Why, do you it, think they were babies with Link? Um, not babies with Link, but at some time in the past. Or at least the existence of babies uh, is enough of a thing among the Kokiri that they didn't comment on it or find it noteworthy. Do we know how long the Kokiri have been Kokiri? We have no idea. Because um, I was thinking maybe that the introduction of Link to their forest was like, oh, what is this? Oh, a kid? Oh, that's a thing you can be? Let's let's do that. Oh, you're thinking they were like Koroks before that and then they swapped over? Yeah. So and they, they just be Link's pals slash bullies. And they played it being humans like that? Yeah, I, that's, that's a cute idea. I kind of like that. It is the only game in the series that have the Kokiri, I guess because they're so much less distinctive than the Koroks end up being. But I'm, but I'm glad that they went the way they did in this one, because it, it, it definitely has a 
good feeling to it. And I like all the characters in this. They're all, if you start talking to them, a lot of them are actually very strange. Suspicious characters like Link's Awakening. Kind of, but also more actively sinister than some of the characters in Link's Awakening. Like the girl with the blonde hair and the two, like, meatball buns. Where she, like, thinks it's really funny that people go into the Lost Woods and die and become skeleton monsters. Yeah, that's pretty in line with forest spirits. Yeah, they're like, they're almost like, some of them are really nice. Some of them are really genuinely kids. Some of them are towing the line where they're very nearly imps and give off the air that they could be dangerous in a different context. Yeah, the whole forest has that weird sort of just beneath the surface creepiness to it that then really comes out in the forest. Yeah, it does. And that's something, like, they also downplay that a lot in the beginning where it feels almost straight up like Neverland where you're just running around with a bunch of kids who have been kids forever. Oh, I guess we're going to be kids forever. That's a good time. And you don't start to see the strangeness until you come back. In the corpse kind of lose that edge. They do. They're more. They're much more benevolent tricksters. But then you also get the thing where Koroks will be hanging out in the middle of Ganon's castle and apparently not giving a shit about anything going on about them. Well, yeah, why should they? They're immortal forest spirits. Yeah, I guess so. Well, if they're only as immortal as the Deku Tree, they might have problems if Ganon ever actually bothers to look at them. Oh, their Deku Tree is pretty strong, so I don't think they have anything. Oh, we'll see. Anyway, so... The Deku Tree charges Link with breaking the curse that's been placed upon him. And Link goes in, and he goes through what I think might still be the best opening dungeon in the Zelda series, just in terms of how it teaches you the mechanics and the way that you should approach different puzzles. One of two dungeons where you go inside someone's body. The other one being Jabu Jabu? Yeah. Yeah, but I, I just mean like as a first dungeon... I still really love its method of design. Every time uh, I think about that dungeon, I think about that jump you have to make near the very top because it looks like the kind of fall that would kill you. But there's a heart out there and you just sort of assume that if there's a heart there, you're safe. So you jump out far enough to grab the heart and you fall and you hit the netting that forms the bottom of the floor in that room of the Deku Tree. And if you hit it just right, you break through it and go into the next floor of the dungeon, and the dungeon suddenly doubles in size, and that's still the coolest shit. Yeah, that is great design. They really had to nail it for this one, because it is not only the first dungeon in this game, but the first dungeon of 3D Zelda. And it set the tone in a really nice way. And Link goes through the Deku Tree. He solves all these puzzles, and he fights these corrupted Deku... What do you think is up with the Deku Sprouts in this game? The Deku Shrubs. I think they're just kind of another tribe of forest people, you know? Do you? Yeah, that maybe don't have as close of a connection with the Deku Tree, but I think the forest is bigger than the Deku Tree. That makes sense. So it's like they're themselves, like, if the Deku Tree is a great spirit to the degree that it might be considered a god, and the children of the forest are the children of the god, then the Deku shrubs might be considered lesser spirits? Yeah, I'd say something like that. All right. That makes its own sense. And Link goes through this, and he fights these Deku creatures, right? But alongside the Deku creatures, there are also bats, for whatever reason, and spiders. The Deku tree is just 
full of fucking spiders. And not like regular spiders. There's Skulltulas over there, and they're like the size of dinner plates. Fine, video game spiders. But then you get into that one room that always freaked me out when I was a kid, where you step in the wrong place, and these eggs drop from the ceiling, and they hatch into these horrible bipedal cyclopean spider monsters that are as big as Link is. And they croak like frogs, and they jump at you. And it's just, it's just horrible. I hate them. It's a bad curse. It's a bad curse. It's a spider curse. A dead tree full of spiders. I wouldn't want to be that tree. And Link gets to the top and he finds the queen spider. And she's bad. She just drops eggs on you. And you have to shoot her in the eyeball and beat her up. And I guess she's an easy boss. But I was scared of her as a kid. Hated that boss. He kills the cur- he kills the giant queen spider. Breaks the curse on the decatree. Everything's going to be fine. Except the decatree tells you, no, I was dead before you started. So here's the spiritual stone of the forest. I'm going to die now. You have to stop Ganondorf. And he tells Link the story of the goddesses of the Triforce and how the Triforce is this special treasure that Ganondorf's going to be after and he cannot be allowed to have it at any cost. So the Decatree dies and sends Link off with Navi to find Princess Zelda. What is the story, Cameron? Oh, no. I mean, I could read the whole thing, I guess. Let me see here. Let's read the story about how the goddesses came from a distant nebula. What? No, that didn't happen in this version of the story. Well, it, it's they're clearly from space. I don't know that that's true. You can't read the cosmology of ancient lore as being the same as cosmology as we understand it. And they're represented as like these untextured yellow statues. Yeah, they're like great flaming Oscar awards, basically. UFOs, if you will. No, I'm not going to acquiesce to that one. But do do we need to go over that whole thing? How about you tell the story? Okay, sure. Link me up. Oh, okay, hold on. Link link me up, get it? Yeah, I got it, hold on. Though, this bit is interesting because I think this might be the only time in the entire series that the goddesses are actually named both as goddesses and with names. Really? Is it nowhere else? I don't think so. Well, no, I take that back. Din's Pearl and the rest of those in Wind Waker. But, yeah. but those, mm, I think those two might be it. So here's the story that the Deku Tree tells. This evil man ceaselessly uses his vile sorcerer's powers in his search for the sacred realm that is connected to Hyrule. For it is in that sacred realm that one will find the divine relic, the Triforce, which contains the essence of the gods. Before time began, before spirits and life existed, three golden goddesses descended upon the chaos that was Hyrule. Din, the goddess of power. Nehru, the goddess of wisdom. Ferori, the goddess of courage. Din, with her strong flaming arms, she cultivated the land and created the red earth. Nehru poured her wisdom onto the earth and gave the spirit of law to the world. Ferori, with her rich soul, produced all lifeless who would uphold the law. The three great goddesses, their labors completed, parted for the heaven, and golden sacred triangles remained at the points where the goddesses left the world. Since then, the sacred triangles have become the basis of our world's providence, and the resting place of the triangles has become the sacred realm. Now, just for our listeners here, keep in mind that Crystal and I are pronouncing names that we've always read but never heard said. So if we do that differently, it's okay. Don't correct either of us. You can send in your pronunciation corrections. Never! Do not do that. Ignore her on that. 
How do you pronounce Ferrari? I say Faror. Okay, that's valid. That's it. That's the only big one that came up there. But I'm just saying, like, this may come up more because I say Kakariko. So, you're right. The These goddesses wouldn't really be worshipped because they are portrayed as having left the world. They are the demiurge. They're not actively involved. Yeah, they show up, they do their work, they get out. And it's interesting because this isn't something that the Great Deku Tree could have witnessed. This story takes place before the Deku Tree's existence. So it's the closest that we get to a canon explanation about how the universe begins, but even it has its own set of doubts. That's true. Deku Tree could be missing some details, like Hylia. Yeah, it's... Based on Skyward Sword, we know that the Triforce did not originally rest in the Sacred Realm, and that there was a war over it while it sat in Hyrule. And actually, a lot of games seem to suggest a similar thing. In Twilight Princess, wasn't the war over the Triforce while it sat in Hyrule rather than the Sacred Realm? Well, his exact wording is, the resting place of the Triangles has become the Sacred Realm. Ah. He's not saying it was always the Sacred Realm. I see. Well... That's awfully uh, pedantic for somebody who may or may not actually know what he's talking about. But I've always liked this story. I always liked sitting there and watching this particular bit. I always thought that was really cool. But yeah, I think this is also, this and Wind Waker may be the only time that Din, Nehru, and Faroa are referred to both by name and as goddesses. Because in Skyward Sword, they're always referred to as the old gods. Even back in that far, long, long ago, their names were no longer known. Or maybe they didn't have names back then. You're suggesting that maybe they were named afterward? Yeah. Huh. I had not considered that. That's a cool idea. I like that. We know that the dragons who have names similar to them were around back then. Maybe it was derived the other way. Hmm. Yeah, maybe. That's that's an interesting idea. Have have. God, has Monica suggested that in the past? Maybe she did. Yeah, I like that idea. That's a pretty cool idea that maybe the... This is something that I've thought too. Maybe the idea of the gods of the Triforce. Because when I say god, I mean it without gender. So if I ever refer to Hylia as a god, I don't mean to portray Hylia as masculine. Hylia is clearly feminine. Of course. But the gods of the Triforce being understood to be feminine, I after playing Skyward Sword, I kind of wondered if... Maybe that happened because of Hylia worship, coloring understanding of the gods that formed the universe. That very well may be possible. Because I think Skyward Sword is the only Nintendo-made Zelda that takes place before Ocarina of Time, and it never uses gender to refer to any of the gods except for Hylia. Are, are most of the minor deities male? Um, Lord Jabu-Jabu... I don't know. The thing is, if we read them in English, Jabu Jabu can be read as male, but I don't know if that's the same in Japanese. The Great Deku Tree is clearly masculine. Um, the Goddess of the Sands is very much feminine. Definitely. Although uh, she's not really around in the same way. Well, neither is the God of the Gorons, but that was probably masculine as well in its own way. Uh, yeah, I, I think most they're mostly male, but it's like a two. It's like a three to two split. Okay, fair enough. And while Link is saving the Deku Tree, Gandorf's off with the Gorons demanding the uh, Sacred Stone of Fire. And Daruni, ahead of the Gorons, is like, I, I'm not giving you that. You you seem like trouble. And Gandorf's like, I'm going to show you that I'm not trouble by starving all of your people to death. Well, see ya. And he blocks off their only source of food 
in a way that they can't get at it, and then he leaves. Yeah, it's interesting how you're kind of always on Ganon's tail in this game, where he shows up shortly before you do, poisons the land in some way, and then you have to fix it before moving on. Yeah, yeah, that's you're strictly reactionary to Ganondorf in this one, at least for the first while, and I guess it much more so in the latter half of the game. Hmm, lost my train of thought there. But yeah, as Ganondorf is doing that, the interesting thing about this, he does all of this very, very quickly. He goes and he cuts off the food supply for the Gorons, and he goes over to Zora's domain and gains access to it. I don't know exactly how. And he goes and he has a private audience with Lord Jabu Jabu because he assumes that the god of the Zora would be the one guarding the uh, sacred stone of water. And he's wrong. It's actually the princess who has it, but he assumes that Jabu Jabu has it. And I guess he must commune with Jabu Jabu or something because he also puts a death curse on that one. Well, he's a sorcerer. He can probably commune. He he kills a lot of gods in this game, actually. He's strong. Maybe he killed the goddess of the sands. That doesn't make a ton of sense, but um, no, whatever. He is a strong man, though. He's a strong, evil man, and he kills gods, and it kind of sets the tone for him for the entire other two games that he appears in. Boy, I wish he was in more than two games, or two more games. He's thought of... He's in more than two games. No. He's in Four Swords Adventures. Nope. Not at, he nope. is. Not little, I'm not talking about little baby Ganondorf who may or may not be canon in the same way. I'm talking about big, scary, vaguely sad, if you think about him too long, but then also still super evil Ganondorf, the man, the sorcerer, who might turn into a pig, you're not sure. I mean, it is still an unbroken chain in A Link to the Past. How do you mean? I mean, that's this Ganon who was never killed. I actually think away. it I actually think that might be a different Ganon. Oh, that's true. I'm very excited to hear this theory that you've been teasing me with for 7 million years. Yeah. So, he, he basically Gandor goes around, he acts a dick to everyone. He just curses people and he ruins their food supplies and he poisons the water and like he makes it so that the god of the Zoras eats their princess because he's confused because of the death curse and he's like, "All right, my work here is done. I'm going to go talk to the King of Hyrule and make nice. And after I'm done making nice, I'm going to come back and pick up the stuff I need from all these corpses. <laughs> and he goes to Hyrule Castle, and he and Link arrive not too far apart from each other, actually. So Ganondorf's been working really fast. And Link gets through Hyrule Castle by sneaking all around things. On the way there, he meets a girl, Malin, who is basically just Marin remade. But she's not Zelda, even though Marin was supposed to be Zelda. This is a very strange chain. Yeah, I think the big thing is that they suggested to you in Link's Awakening that Marin was basically Zelda, even though she's completely different in every conceivable way. So when they evoke Marin through Malin, they establish Zelda as a completely different person. And if your first game was... If you played Ocarina before Link's Awakening like I did, then there's not really much dissonance going on there. But looking back on it, it's sort of weird. I know that there was some debate about this in terms of timeline placement because the Oracle games, which are most commonly placed between A Link to the Past and Link's Awakening, also have a lot of elements of Ocarina because they were made shortly after. Right. Uh, Jabu Jabu's in it, Marin's in it. There's lots of little references like that. Hmm. So there are some who think Oracle uh, of Ages and Link's Awakening are sequels to Majora's Mask. I could kind of see that. Do, do you mean Marin or Malin? 
uh, Malin, but also Marin. Because they're the same person, basically. Yes. Okay. Oh, man. That makes me think. In your corner of the internet, were the shipping wars for Ocarina of Time there at all? Yep. Okay. Making sure. Because, uh, yeah, they, they, they raged for years where I was. Like, Are I didn't. You a Malink or a Zellink? Well, at the time, we didn't call them that. Back where I'm from, we called it, uh, so, oh, fuck. Uh, we called it Sage Shipping and Ranch Shipping. And which were you? I was a ranch shipper. Yep, correct. <laughs> That's the only one that has even a little shred of canon implication. Do you mean in Twilight Princess? In this game. In this game. How? Yeah. Okay. Uh, we, 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 oh, dear sweet Jesus. I, I mean, Malin clearly has a crush on you, even if you don't reciprocate. That's pretty true, yeah. Whereas Zelda does not seem to. Well, I, I live with someone who would argue the point. We can, we can come to that a little bit later. But you, you meet Malin and you're introduced to her father, Talon, and they both unwittingly help you sneak into Hyrule Castle and get within five feet of the crown Princess Zelda. And Princess Zelda's actually interesting in this game because it's the first time that she's a character in and of herself. Yes, it is. And she's actually kind of sassy as a kid. Oh, God, she really is. Like, when you say that you don't know if you can keep her secret story, she's like, oh, come on, don't be a blabbermouth. Or she has different things she says if you come and show her all the different masks. And she likes certain masks and doesn't like others. Like, when she sees the bunny hood, she thinks it's stupid because it makes you look like you have four ears. Yeah, I and miss those days when you could put in a bunch of little Easter egg dialogue because it's just text. And canned animations. So you didn't have to, you know, pay a voice actor and animate the face. Well, I mean, Breath of the Wild still does that in a lot of places. But that is still just text and canned animation. Yeah, I think that's a big part of why it's valuable to keep a lot of text-based dialogue in the game. But they they really went whole hog on it for Ocarina, and it lent a lot of extra character to a lot of people, like Zelda. And when she's a kid, she's a really precocious but still very childish person. And she points out Ganondorf to you, and she's like, look at that evil man over there. And Ganondorf looks up, and he's like, huh, who are those two kids? I'm sure it doesn't matter. So, no, I say that, but Ganon seems to cop to your plans almost as soon as they're made in this one. Because as soon as you finish out everything, he's like, ha-ha, I knew what you were doing all along. Which is... Uh, yeah, uh, I don't think it'd be too hard to figure out. No. You see this trope in a lot of uh, stories where children are the protagonists, but Zelda doesn't come off as precocious so much as the king comes off as stupid. Really? And is so obviously up to something. What, do you mean just like he's got that evil-looking smile on the whole time he's kneeling? Yeah, I don't think it's really that perceptive of Zelda to notice that he's up to something. I don't know. The king himself has to have... A certain amount of... Mm, he has to have a certain slyness to him as well, because he is a king of wartime who united a country that was divided. He's not a that's, fool, I don't think. That's fair, but now he's just an old codger. Uh, I think maybe it's more that he doesn't take Ganon as seriously as he should. Maybe he thinks if Ganon does something, whatever, we'll just put him down again. Well, maybe he's thinking... This is one of the reasons that I think maybe Ganondorf is too young to have been involved in the war. Maybe the king just doesn't think of him as a threat because he still thinks of him as a kid. Oh, and, yeah, I could see that. 
And like, that's the big difference between Ganondorf and the King of Hyrule. The King of Hyrule doesn't think much of kids. Ganondorf looks at kids and goes, okay, something's going on over there. And it, 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 it works for me. I like everything about it. And then you meet Impa. And Impa's an interesting character in this one because in the past games, Impa was either not present or this super decrepit old lady who was shaped like a turtle. And it's not clear how she was still alive because she was so old. They made her hot. They made her swole. She is She's so very strong, and she doesn't take any nonsense. You don't. She never says anything to that effect, but you know instantly that she would beat multiple people to death. Like she knew you were in the courtyard before you knew you were in the courtyard, and if she thought you were any kind of threat, she would have kicked you to death. Mm-hmm. But Zelda told her you were coming because Zelda has prophecy, just like Link does in this one. Huh. That's actually interesting. I wonder if the idea is that Hylians themselves have minor gifts of prophecy were in the right place to change things. Or if it implies something about Link. Uh, hmm. I don't think Zelda just has prophecy because she's the magic this. That's very possible, but how does that explain Link's dreams? He uh-huh. has big ears that can hear the voices of the gods. Yep, okay. We'll go with that one. Because we're right on the edge of an argument that got me into a two-day-long fight with Monica back in the day. Um, So, Impa sends you on your way to Death Mountain. You go and you meet with the Gorons, who you find out are all men. And it's not clear what they do to reproduce, but they're all all dudes. They all call you brother. They have big brother Darunia. Okay, let me hear this theory about the old Goron god. Okay, so one of the things that Gandorf does when he blocks off access to Dodongo's cavern, obviously he blocks it off with rocks that uh, they should be able to blow up with bomb flowers, but due to drought, they don't have any bomb flowers in a good position to get it over there before it explodes, because nobody ever thinks to just toss it over the fence or whatever. The other thing is that he resurrects Dodongo, a fire-breathing lizard creature that... I guess might predate on Gorons or something. They're extremely dangerous, and Gorons don't like to mess with them that much. The only way to fight them when you're as slow-moving as Gorons are is with bomb flowers. And when Link fights his way through Dodongo's cavern, he fights three different scales of Dodongo. He fights these little teeny baby Dodongos who are almost like baby worms. They're really cute. They, like, jump at you, and if you pop them, they're like, no, and then they blow up like bombs. And there's the juvenile Dodongos, or I guess maybe adult Dodongos, who are like these alligator monsters with two legs, and they spew great plumes of fire, and you can feed them bombs and it'll kill them in one go, or you can chop their tails up, but they're armored from the front. They're super tough. And then there's the King Dodongo in the depths of Dodongo's cavern, and it has developed to the point that it has four legs rather than two, which seems to suggest it might be actually the only adult Dodongo in the entire place. And King Dodongo's big, right? It's like the biggest Dodongo in the series. Yeah. Except that Dodongo's cavern has two more scales of Dodongo to consider in it. The first one is the giant Dodongo head that's sort of at the center of the cavern. Oh, okay, yeah. And that, that head is larger than King Dodongo is. You have to drop bombs into its eyes to solve a puzzle, but it's very much, as near as we can tell, an actual petrified Dodongo head. Okay. So that's like a fourth scale. But there's actually a fifth scale, because the room in which that head is sitting is itself this giant cavern that's lined with ribs. Oh, shit. 
which suggests to me that the entirety of Dodongo's cavern is just one big-ass Dodongo corpse. Oh, you're telling me every one of the dungeons in the Child Link section of the game is a Vor dungeon? God damn you. No. No, 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 no. I just think that this, the great Dodongo, as it were, that forms Dodongo's cavern is the old god of the Gorons, and that, at least in Ocarina of Time, the reason that Gorons can't eat rocks from anywhere else, they only eat rocks from inside Dodongo's cavern, is because they're not eating rocks, they're eating petrified flesh. They're eating his godly essence. Sure. Well, I mean, they don't... Yeah, okay, yeah, sure. It gives them life through his life. Sure, that that, that can kind of work. But that's 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 how I, I always read Dodongo's Cavern, is that... It was made of a big Dodongo, and the Gorons eat the Dodongo, and that's why they can't really eat other rocks. So the Dodongo, the big Dodongo's flesh is rock? Well, I mean, it petrifies over time. It's probably been dead for thousands of years. Is that how that works? I don't well, see why it wouldn't be. for a rock be. god, sure. Huh? For a rock god, I guess, yeah. Yeah, for a god, god of fire and rocks. Yeah, we're going to go with that. It's fossilized. That is exactly how that works, and nobody can ever tell you different, because they don't know. Anyway, yeah, I just think Dodongo's Cavern is a big-ass Dodongo. and yeah, that makes the- sense. It creates a parallel with uh, the Deku Tree and Jabu Jabu dungeons. Right. So we've got that, and afterwards... Now, I really like the Zora's Domain quest line for a lot of reasons, because it's relentlessly silly in the way that most of the first half of Ocarina of Time is really silly. Like, a lot of things are communicated to you through letters that are sent to you by princesses giving you orders. There's something inherently goofy about Zelda giving you a specially written royal pass to go up Death Mountain, and you're ten, and she's ten, and she's investing you with this like she's giving you a quest to save the world, because that's exactly what it is. But it's inherently absurd, because she's ten. Yeah, Ocarina's a very goofy game. And, like, the the guard that you give it to... Just laughs his ass off at the entire thing because she's 10 and you're 10. He's like, well, legally I have to let you go up there, but this is awful silly. And when I was a kid, I thought, oh, that guy's an asshole. But nowadays I think like, no, that guy, that's that's a reasonable reaction to have. And then you get a Keaton mask for his son. Yes, for his son. But he wears it all day. <laughs> he does wear it all day. His son is very into his dad wearing Keaton masks. Not clear. It was clear to me that he did not have a son. He just no, wanted the mask. Almost definitely did not have a son. So it's like he's he's got this preoccupation with childishness being goofy, but he has this really strong childish urge himself. He doesn't want to be uncool. Little does he know that kids are the coolest. So Link uses uh, Zelda's lullaby to communicate that he's aligned with the royal family. And he uses Saria's song as a way to cheer hearts. During all of this, he goes back... To the Lost Woods. This is back before he enters Dodongo's Cavern. And gets Saria's song, which allows him to communicate telepathically with Saria. Not really super clear how that works, except that it's possibly forest magic. But there's an interesting bit when you get the song from her where you're sitting beneath the entrance to the forest temple. And she talks about how she thinks that this place will be very important for the two of you someday. She's right? Well, she's super right. But back then that seemed very foreboding to me. And that's part of why I thought she was so wise. And I guess I could keep talking about this shit forever. There's so much going on in this game, like all the different character interactions, and I'm not sure how deep we should be Let's going. Let's go as deep as we can. Oh, dear God, Jesus, heaven, hell. Okay. 
what did you think of the sequence near the beginning of the game when Link is leaving Kokiri Forest and he parts ways with Saria? Because that's one of the scenes where they actually changed Link's animation in the transition from the N64 version to the 3DS version. Oh, oh yeah, you're right. Because in the N64 version, it was very easy to read his uh, body language as being freaked out by Saria's goodbye and then running away. But That's in, not quite how I read it. No, it's not how I read it either, but I always heard a lot of those jokes. And I was like, oh, that's not fair to that scene. And then in the 3DS version, they changed it up a lot, where it's clear that he's not really sure whether or not he wants to leave, but he has to go, so he goes. Yeah, that's how I read the original scene, too. And something about that was so sad to me. It's it's interesting, the relationship that he has with Saria, because all throughout this game, Link is still 10 years old in his head, so Saria never really stops being his big sister. Right. And, I don't know, just... To, it's hard to communicate the ways in which I found these things affecting when I was a kid because they inform how I find them affecting now, but it makes it sort of muddied up my experiences of them. Why do you say that? Because it's hard to separate the feelings that I have now from the feelings that I had as a child. Because Sari is one of my favorite characters in any Zelda game just because she's so relentlessly goddamn sad. But in well, like, I would say this whole game is kind of sad. Zelda games are often very sad, but this one had a lot of sad in it. And you don't get a feel for why things are so sad in the beginning of it. But by the time you get to the latter half of the game, shit starts to unravel really fast. Kind of like Nier. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm still on path A in Nier. You think it's sad? I mean, it, it's got some, like, sad-ish elements so far. It's going to get sad. You're going to look back at stuff in A and be like, oh, mm, right, okay. That's yeah, that, yeah, that's that's kind of that, that's kind of the whole uh, M.O. for this uh, director, right? Uh-huh. So Link goes to Zora's domain, and he goes to the king of the Zoras, and he's like, listen, I need the spiritual stone. And King Zora's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Listen, nobody can go through to see Lord Jabu Jabu. He's been awfully weird ever since he talked to Ganondorf. Also, has anybody seen my daughter? Anyone? It's easy for me to believe that he actually doesn't know what Link's talking about. Yeah, 100%. Because it seems like... The secret of the Zora Sapphire is passed down matrilineally, and the King Zora is just completely in the dark about it. Like, he's probably seen it, but he has no idea what the hell it is. The Zora are kind of portrayed as the elves of the Zelda universe, where they're kind of the proud, stuck-up ones. Kind of, but they're awfully doofy in this one. Yeah, and then this one, you get to the king, and he's a total doofus. Like, my fate, one of my very favorite things about the entire game are the unskippable sequences that involve him scooting out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> Every single time, it takes like 30 seconds, and I've never gotten impatient for it because I just watch him move that whole way, and I think this is one of those sequences where they just want you to sit and take it all in. And you can either rage at it, or you can go along with it. And I just find it much easier to go, oh, this is the silliest thing that happens. We forgot to talk about the scene where Darunia does his little dance. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In keeping with the inherent doofiness, Darunia is a leader among the Gorons. He's apparently been a leader of the Gorons since the war. He's a sworn brother of the king. And when Link shows up using the song that the royal family uses to signify their arrival, and it's a 10-year-old, Daruni is like, I cannot believe 
that my sworn brother, the king, would send me a 10-year-old in our time of need, and he gets so pissed he won't talk to you. That's fair. I yeah. Think. It's like, that's, that's like has to be the hardest imaginable snub. And so Link doesn't know what to do with this. And Navi, helpfully, is like, have we talked to Saria in a while? So Link's like, no, let's go do that. So he goes off and he talks to Saria, who's in the Lost Woods. And the Lost Woods is much easier to navigate as a kid than as an adult because Saria's actually playing music deep, deep inside of it. And you can just follow the sound of her playing. And you get there and she teaches you her song. And you have that moment with her where it's very quiet. And she says that she thinks this place will be very important to the two of you in the future. And this song is magical and it lets you speak to her telepathically. But it's also just a kicking tune. A lot of good tunes in this game. It's a it's a very tune-based game in a way that only Majora's Mask managed to stack up to it out of all of its sequels. And Saria's song opens up a lot of different avenues for you. You use it with one of the Skull Kids in the woods, and he decides that he's your friend now. You will be friends forever. And he gives you a heart piece. And that guy will be important later. So remember him. He's your friend. And you take the song back to Darunia, and the game doesn't really tell you to play the song for him. But it's like, well, you've done pretty much everything else you can, and there's, like, musical bars beneath his feet, and you get a prompt to play a song for him, and he doesn't care about Zelda's lullaby, so you play Saria's song, and he declares it the hottest beat that he's ever heard, and he completely loses control of his body. Just, he is he is swept away by the rhythm. And I think that might be the most famous animation in Zelda history, is Darunia's dance. What a hot beat. Yeah, like, I, I'm actually into it myself. I've tried doing the dance. It's harder than you would think. But, uh, yeah. Then you go through the whole thing and to the Dongo's Cavern, go back around to Zora's Domain. The princess is missing in Zora's Domain and nobody could good goddamn find her. And everybody's like, oh, where's the princess? Surely she has not gone through that passage over there all the way to Lake Hylia. No, that couldn't have happened. And naturally, you go to Lake Hylia. Through that passage, because you figure, oh, that's where she went. And you find a message in a bottle, and it is a demand from Princess Ruto. It looks like there's something already inside this bottle. It's a letter, and the letter reads, Help me. I'm waiting for you inside Lord Jabu Jabu's belly. Ruto. P.S. Don't tell my father. So the first thing that Link does is take this letter that whole search parties of Zora's never thought to open up and look at, straight to the King Zora, and show it to him. Because if there's one thing that Link can't stand, it's being directed to do shit by a letter. And King Zora's like, this doesn't make any sense. This is impossible. Wait, maybe? Huh. Well, this is something I can trust a 10-year-old to take care of. Here you go. And then he spends a long time getting out of your way so you can go back there, feed a fish Lord Jabu Jabu, and go inside of it. Yeah, this is a very strange dungeon. Because he went inside the Deku Tree, but that's okay because he's a tree man, so it's just wood. Yep. And then, uh, as we surmised, we went inside the ancient Dodongo Emperor, and that's okay, because his body is fossilized rock. Yep. But you go inside Jabu Jabu, and it's flesh and mucus. And it's gooey. It's gross. Every time you hit the walls, they go blah, 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 which is, I thought that was insane when I was a kid, that the walls would react when you threw the boomerang at it. But yeah, he's a big, grody dungeon, and it only gets worse in the Master Quest when he's got, like, cows growing inside of him like giant polyps. Ugh. It's either that or he swallowed the cows, and they somehow became embedded in his throat. He 
could have just swallowed the cows. Yeah. I mean, neither one of the feed them. Neither one of those is very pleasant as an idea. But Tabu Jabu is like the grossest dungeon in the series for a lot of reasons. And you find Ruto, and she is possibly the most Sundere character in Zelda canon. Hold on, hold on. Um, yeah, okay. Mm, checks out. <laughs> yeah, you, were you trying to think of anyone else? Yeah, but I couldn't think of one. No, she has that uh, thing where she... Like, admits her actual feelings in a scene, and then says, just a little, and she does that, like, three different fucking times. And, uh, yeah, Ruto's a fun character, because she is the first character outside of a possible great fairy, where Link is completely intimidated by femininity. Like, utterly. Because you rescue her from inside of Lord Jabu Jabu, and you kill the manifestation of the curse, which is, like, this big horrible tumor jellyfish what what do you think baronade was i think it was a monster conjured by ganon but as far as form of it was it just like a parasite kind of like goma let me okay let me analyze this disgusting creature it's horrible yeah i don't know this looks like some kind of sea creature he's described as in bioelectric anemone oh an anemone no less Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So yeah, he's he a, just looks like a Cthulhu. Yeah, he's a Cthulhu beast, and uh, he's horrible, and you kill him, and Jabu Jabu does not immediately die, so that's okay. That's a good thing. And you and Ruto get out of there, and Ruto's like, wow, you rescued me from inside Jabu Jabu. That makes you the coolest. Sort of. I mean, I didn't really think that ever. But she decides that she'll give you Zora's Sapphire. Oh, but there's a catch. There is a fucking catch to quote my mother gave it to me and said i should give it only to the man who will be my husband you might call it the zora's engagement ring so she gives it to you and you're engaged because this game doesn't have enough of the shit where 10 year olds are acting like 10 year olds and uh she's a little bit different from most of the characters in that she intends to hold you to that shit does she i think so it's definitely uh definitely something that she intends to hold you to for at least a little while and it's funny to me because after you bring her back to king zora it's like he never acknowledges what happened and she's like don't you tell him what happened and king zora's like boy i'm glad she's back and that that whole thing with jabu jabu was apparently nonsense and also jabu jabu's not dead at all <laughs> so you, you gather up all the different uh jewels right and you think all right time to take these to the princess and once i show them to the princess she'll be able to give me the ocarina of time and we'll go get the uh Triforce, and we're going to fix things, and Ganon won't be able to do anything. And then the game starts to take a little bit of a turn, tonally speaking. Yeah. It's that sequence when you're coming near the gates to Hyrule Castle Town, and the sky grows dark, even if it's noontime, and lightning starts flashing as the gates come down, and it's the exact vision that Link had at the very beginning of the game. And Ganon shows up, well, Zelda flees, carried by Impa on a white horse, and as she's riding by, she throws an object into the moat, making sure that you can see it. And just after the object lands in the moat, Ganondorf appears. And he's like, hey, kid, did you see where those two went? And you don't say nothing. He's like, I'm sorry. Do I have to repeat myself? And Link, because 10-year-olds in this setting are operating on a completely different level from everyone else, draws his sword on this 10-foot-tall god-killing sorcerer. And Ganon's like, wow. 
I like your moxie, kid. Get the fuck out of my way. And he basically just kicks you out of the way. I like Ganondorf's manner of speech here. Because he is a king, but he does not speak like a royal. No, he doesn't. He has very rough. Yeah, he's, he refers to Link as little kid. And then when Link draws his sword, he says, You want a piece of me? <laughs> it's like this kid's fucking challenging him. And he's like, Oh, I see how it is. I'm sorry, you went to an accent a little bit there. What, what, what accent? A southern one. Oh, I see. <laughs> I always co- imagine Ganondorf with a Brooklyn accent. Why is that? It just seems to fit with his mannerism. His Oh, so you don't hear him as having like a deep Kansai accent. I mean, Kansai accents can be translated to Joyzy or Deep South, right? I don't see why not. Yeah, I can also see him... This doesn't really fit with his mannerisms, but I can also see him as like a southern good old boy. Huh. It's a bit of an odd thing for Ganondorf. I, I don't know how I would read his accent in English, because the only part of you, his voice you hear is his laughter. But I, I really like that sequence, because there's this 10-year-old who draws a sword on him, and he's like, wow, you could not be less threatening. But then, just to prove the point, because he could just ride on, and he intends to ride on without listening to you talk, but he blasts Link in the face with magic, just to, like, establish dominance, and then he rides on. Yeah, the king ends up kind of looking like a chump here. It's such a perfectly dick move that it's like, if he thought he had had more time, he might have stuck around to kick the shit out of you. Ganondorf's a prick in this one. He's bad. He's a bad man. So you go and you retrieve the Ocarina of Time, and Zelda communicates with you telepathically and gives you the Song of Time, which you can use to open the door of time inside the Temple of Time. There's a lot of of time in this game. And that's just like the first scene where the tone shifts a little bit, and that kind of blunts it, because Ganondorf kicking the shit out of Link is goofy in its own way. But as you're going through Hyrule Castle Town, you find a soldier. If if you go really through Hyrule Castle Town, like go into the alleys, you find a soldier. And the soldier's dying. Did you ever find this when you were a kid? I did not, know. No? I think most people didn't. Oh, have you seen this, though? Yes, I have. Okay. And I, I found him my first time through because I did a lot of running around for whatever reason. And it, like, really freaked me out because this soldier tells you that he tried to keep Ganondorf and his followers from chasing after Princess Zelda after what happened at the castle. But, and he couldn't do it, obviously. He's here wounded, bleeding out. And he says that you have to do whatever you can to make sure that Ganondorf doesn't get the princess. That this is all that matters. And that you have to help somehow. And then he fucking dies! He does die. People don't die on screen in Ocarina of Time very often. I think he might be the only, like, character who dies. Uh, well, there are some people who believe Saria is dead. I'm gonna take that back. We, we do say Kotake and Koome die. And if the sages die, they all die off screen. That's true. But, yeah, as far as humans... They, like, this is the only death where it's played super straight, and it's right in front of you, and it's, like, really strange and dark and sad. And it's it's a good sequence. I, it didn't affect me the way it affects some people. Some people talk about it as being one of the most effective pieces of storytelling in Zelda history, and I don't know if it's that. But it is indicative of the kind of shift that the game is having going forward. I wonder why they made this scene so out of the way. I think they were just really in love with Easter eggs. But it does kind of feel like the moment where Link grows up. And, like, he realizes, okay, this is serious. People die. This is not just a fun adventure. Yeah, this is for real. And it's like, he has to internalize that a little bit. 
And in a way, it can sort of prepare you for what comes within the next 15 minutes. So you go into the Temple of Time, and you place the three sacred stones at the door of time, and you play play the Song of Time. And this part of the game always gets me because that particular version of the Song of Time that plays when you open the door only plays once every time you play the game. That always used to bum me out a little bit because I really like that version of the song. And you go through, and there's the Master Sword. And it's a really good sequence where you see the Master Sword sitting there in the middle of this cathedral and the sunlight's falling on it. It's one of the best framed shots of any Zelda game. And it's way once you walk past the point where the room actually loads and it's not just a JPEG at the end of the corridor. And the only thing that gets it, changes that scene's feel for me, is when Navi talks about the Master Sword like she's the announcer on a game show. Yeah. It's that legendary blade. That legendary blade. Yeah. It's like, I, I have to feel like maybe that is something that read differently to the translator than it does to me. But even when I was a kid, I was like, oh, I would have done that one differently. So you draw the sword. And, Uh-oh. And boom, it turns out Ganon knew what you were doing the whole time. He planned it. He planned it all. He knew what these 10-year-olds were doing. Apparently. Like, he could do that. He's he's magical. He can just scry on you or whatever the hell. So then he gets, assumedly, the Triforce. And when you wake up, you're an adult now. As adult as Zelda characters get. Which is like 17. Maybe a little older. And you find out that you're in the Sacred Realm when you wake up. In the Temple of Light. Which is where the first sage you meet. Raru, the Sage of Light, is. And he tells you, things have gone sort of bad in the last seven years that you've been asleep so you need to be prepared for that and also you need to gather up the rest of the sages because without them we don't stand a chance against ganon so out you go right and link leaves and he gets out and this is the part for me where i was like well this is the worst thing i've ever seen in my life because you get into hyrule castle town and it is just devastated yeah this game gets really really dark it's like there used to be like crowds of people just elbowing each other in the face trying to get at goods that were on sale and kids running around chasing dogs and dogs running around chasing dogs and like there's so much it was a really bustling town or it felt like it at the time and then you get out into it and everything is gray and the sun doesn't shine on this place and all the buildings have been destroyed and the happy mask shop has its sign like literally broken in half so that the and the Roof of it has caved in, so it looks like the corpse of a building is smiling at you, and it's fucked up. And the place is full of zombies! Who, when they see you, there's a screaming noise, and they lock onto you, and then they latch onto your back and strangle you. And you can't move! It's That was my first time running into Redeads, and it was the worst thing I'd ever seen in my whole life. Yeah, those things are scary. They're horrible. Just so bad. And it's like that... It, that that it, then you look into the background and you think, oh, I'll go see what's up with Hyrule Castle, I guess. And you go over there and Link sees what's happened to Hyrule Castle and he freaks his shit. And it's one of the only times in the game that you get a really flagrant emotional reaction out of Link to anything that he's seeing. And it's because Hyrule Castle is gone. The entire plot of land on which it stood is gone. There's just this big pit filled with lava, and this big evil castle that's floating in the air above where Hyrule Castle used to be. And everything is just bad. It's all bad. Everything's gone bad. And the entire last half of the game is about trying to deal with how things have gone bad, because you made a mistake 
You fucking did this. You gave the power into the hands of this madman, and he used it to essentially conquer the world while you were away. Is this what Ganon wants the world to be? It's not really clear. I mean, he, he, it's it, it's incomplete to him, but from your perspective, he's done. Oh, he's a cruel man. Needlessly so. Oh, that is Ganondorf, right? But this is before he became the avatar of malice and hate. He was already a pretty bad man. Also, I'm not sure he ever becomes the avatar of malice and hate. But yeah, always was a bad man. And this is like a good... It, it's just effective visual storytelling for 10-year-olds where it's like, okay, everything that you thought was good is bad now and everything's destroyed and nothing is left. That was part one of Ocarina of Time. Look out for part two and then part three in the near future. And don't forget to check out the rest of the network at audioentropy.com.